Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Few American artists have had more of an impact on our culture than Bob Dylan. Now, as the singer-songwriter turns 70, we're going back to the beginning. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cotter, the Chicago Tribune. We'll look back at Dylan's rise from an unknown folky to a rock and roll icon. And then it's my turn to drop a coin in the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. have heard us talk in the past on Sound Opinions about the cloud, the next step in the evolution of digital music, the idea that somewhere in the ether you can store all your music and access it at any time from anywhere on any of your devices. You no longer have to be tethered to your music collection. Well, the first major corporate step toward making that a reality happened late Monday. Amazon.com introduced its new Amazon Cloud Drive. This is essentially a 5-gig storage locker up there in space where all of the music on your hard drive can be uploaded to this storage locker that you can then tap into and, and have streaming audio or download your own music into whatever device you're carrying at the moment, wherever you happen to be, providing that there's Internet access. You can upgrade from these 5 gigs to an additional 20 gigs of free storage space. That's a lot of music if you buy one album from the Amazon.com store, second only to the iTunes store for for popularity of downloading music at this point. That's pretty reasonable because to upgrade from an 8-gig iPod to a 16-gig iPod would cost about 30 bucks, whereas you can buy an album from the Amazon store for as cheap as 70 cents. So there's a lot of headroom there, a lot of music, and you can download pretty much everything on your hard drive in a couple of hours. There is, however, a catch here. This is not compatible, this new service, with any of the Apple products, the iPod, the iPad, the iPhone, which happen to be the most popular pieces of hardware for listening to music these days. That's problem number one, but there's also a second one. There is a second issue here, Jim, and it has to do with the law. Right now, the technology is evolving faster than the business models. And this is supposedly a triumphant day for Amazon because they beat Apple and Google, who are long rumored to have these cloud-based services going up to the punch. Why? Google and Apple, as well as services like Spotify, have been trying to get these licensing agreements from the major labels in order to go ahead with these services. They have not been able to do that, 
Amazon basically said, you know, we're just going to jump in the deep end. We're going to wait for that to catch up with us, but we're going to start this service now. This is not going over super well with uh, some of the major labels. CNNMoney.com quoted a Sony Music spokesman as saying, we're hoping that they will resolve the situation by moving to a licensed model. We are keeping our legal options open. That sounds like, you know, there could be a lawsuit down the road here for this, possibly. We don't know. But nonetheless, Amazon is the first in there, and we'll see how it goes. Come here, ladies and your gentlemen, and listen to my song. I'll sing it to you right, but you might think it's wrong. Just a little glimpse of a story I'll tell about an East Coast city that you all know while it's hard times in a city living down in New York town. Oh, New York City is a friendly old town From Washington Heights to Harlem on down There's a mighty many people a milling all around They'll kick you when you're up and knock you when you're down It's hard times in the city Living down in New York town You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that voice belongs to only one man, Bob Dylan. We are gearing up for the first of three specials about Dylan's career. This episode is going to focus on his early days as a folky and a protest singer. Dylan, amazingly, is about to turn 70 years old on May 24. Now, some of you may be groaning. I know. I can see you right through the radio saying, I don't want to hear about Bob Dylan. Guy can't sing. He's boring. It's old stuff. All right. I got to confess, I had a hard time learning to love Bob Dylan. I was born the year he put out uh, two records, Another Side of and The Times They Are a Changing. It was a daunting catalog. You look up Bob Dylan on allmusic.com or, or Wikipedia, okay? And there's what, 50, 60 records, Greg? Where mm-hmm. do I start? Why should I care? We are trying to take the approach of why you can stop worrying and learn to love Bob Dylan. We're not sacred about the guy. I will say he is an American treasure. He is one of the greatest talents this country has ever produced, certainly in the last century. Yet, he also has a lot of junk in his catalog. There are times when he made missteps. What is worth valuing? Where do we even start? That's going to be our goal, plus hearing some great music and hopefully turning you on to it. We're going to take a look at Dylan in this first episode of this kid. And he was a kid coming from Minnesota, arriving in New York City at the age of 19 in the winter of 1961. And in three short years, basically running that town. You know, know, I've I've been to Hibbing, Minnesota, and I can't imagine two places on earth that are are less like each other than New York City, Greenwich Village, and Hibbing, Minnesota. (laughs) Indeed. So he comes to town with this boatload of influences, trying to fashion himself into a singer-songwriter. How does he do it in three short years? A lot of people, when they think about this era, they think about the protest songs, okay? It is the spokesman of a generation. It is the ultimate protest singer. It's blowing in the wind. Yeah, it's blowing in the wind. The times they are changing, masters of war, etc. Yes, that's part of the equation here, but there's also this transition into the next phase of his career where more surreal aspects starts to come into his songwriting. I mean, think about how quickly things moved for him. 
Within months of coming to New York, he was being signed to one of the biggest labels in the world, Columbia Records, by no less than John Hammond, the guy who discovered Billie Holiday, Benny Goodman, Count Basie, Aretha Franklin, Pete Seeger, if not discovered them, certainly signed them to major record deals. Now he's signing Bob Dylan to Columbia Records. A few months after that, Dylan is forging a partnership with Albert Grossman, then becoming one of the most powerful managers in the record business. He'd already started working with Peter, Paul, and Mary, who would basically put folk music on the mainstream map, and then made a series of albums. His self-titled release in 62, the freewheeling record in 63, the times they are a change in 64, and another side of Dylan that same year showing massive transitions in each one of those records in his approach as a performer and as a singer-songwriter. Later in the show, we're going to play our favorite Dylan tracks from this area, but first we're going to be joined by Clinton Halen, who has written a number of books on Bob Dylan, including Behind the Shades and most recently Still on the Road. He's going to take us through some of the history of this era and most importantly, the songs. Clinton, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. Glad to be here. Clinton, Dylan was only 19 when he comes from Minnesota and arrives in New York City. And within a few years, he became one of the biggest artists in the world. Musically, where was he at when he arrived in New York? Uh, Well, when he arrived in uh, New York in January 1961, I guess the most important thing to say is that he was not a songwriter. He adapted a couple of old spirituals when he was in Minneapolis, but basically he'd never written a song. And he didn't think of himself in those terms. He thought of himself as a folk troubadour, in the mould of Woody Guthrie, who was, of course, his his great idol at that point. One could genuinely say that uh, New York became his muse. Literally within a month of coming to New York, he'd wrote what is probably his defining early song, Song to Woody. Hey, Woody Guthrie, but I know that you know All the things that I'm a-saying and a many times more I'm a-singing you the song, but I can't sing enough Cause there's not many men who've done the things that you've done Here's to Cisco and Sonny and Lead Belly too And to all the good people that traveled with you Here's to the hearts and the hands of the men That come with the dust and are gone with the wind He, uh, of course, nicked the tune from Woody uh, from 1913 Massacre, but uh, but the song, you know, Here's to Sonny and Cisco and Lead Belly 2, he's basically saying, I'm taking on the mantle. What about his background? He obviously had been listening to a lot of this music already. He was familiar with it, and he brought it to New York. He came to New York primarily because of the folk scene. I mean, that's what all the history books keep telling us. What's your take on it? Uh, well, uh, of course, he, he would say that he came to New York to meet Woody, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, he did. What he perhaps didn't realize was that he'd arrived at a very propitious time because Cisco Houston, who was on his last legs quite literally, was passing through town. Pete Seeger was there. Rambler Jack Elliott turned up shortly after Dylan arrived. So all these figures that he'd only ever been able to reference on, on record were there in the flesh. Clinton, other than Woody Guthrie, who was a big influence on Dylan, uh, one that he's been very vocal about, what else was influencing him? Kerouac, On the Road. 
right. uh, and obviously enough influence. But in a sense, it's something he never really talked about at the time. Um, he himself on Theme Hour Radio obviously has played an enormous amount of material from the 50s that clearly he grew up with, I mean, particularly country music. The big influence that everyone kind of, again, minimises, I would suggest as big an influence as Guthrie, is Leopard. discovers Lead Belly in the last couple of months in Hibbing, you know, in his hometown, and it just turns him around. What is it about Lead Belly specifically that is exciting him? Well, I mean, the one thing that he seems to have tuned into intuitively, he couldn't have known it intellectually, is what he's called the only true valid death you can feel today, which is traditional song. That Lead Belly was, if you like, that kind of last link in the chain. He's the last guy that really is genuinely writing in what might be called a traditional style, using traditional commonplaces and creating something new out of them. And somehow Dylan tapped it and realised that this was something he'd never heard before. He didn't really understand what entirely what it was, but he knew that he'd never heard anything like it. There is a house down in New Orleans They call the rising sun and it's been the ruin of many poor girls And me, oh, God, I'm a one My mother was a tailor She sold these new blue jeans My sweetheart was a gambler, Lord Down in New Orleans Obviously, he stood out, though, pretty quickly. Dylan, out of all this group of folkies that were practicing their art in New York, Greenwich Village at the time, Dylan rose to the top very quickly. What was it about him that stood out from all of these other guys? In the first year that he's in New York, I would have to suggest really ambition. In terms of whether it, he was set apart from the crowd, I don't think he really was in terms of, you know, creatively. I don't, I don't think he'd found it at that point. But what he did have was this really gut-wrenching way of getting things across. Well, I'm going to get you your Sally girl, I'm going to get you your Sally girl. I'm going to get you your Sally girl, I'm going to get you your Sally girl. I'm just one of them rambling men, rambling since I don't know when. Here I come and I'm gone again. Sally says I got no end. I'm gonna get you a Sally girl. 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 And also, he was a consummate harmonica player by that point. People underestimate that. 
and his ability to play bottleneck blues guitar. So things that actually he did not subsequently really become considered an intrinsic part of why Dylan is such a great figure were very important in those early days. Mm -hmm. He writes Blown in the Wind sometime in April 1962. So he's been in New York about 15 months at that point, and obviously that's a huge breakthrough. Here's a song This is in sort of a set, set pattern of songs that say... Uh... say a little more than I love you and you love me and let's go over to the banks of Italy and we'll raise a happy family you for me and me for me apart from anything else the first person that seems to have realized just how important this song was was this guy Albert Grossman who was hovering around on the scene looking for somebody to manage so writing that song, the thing that it really gave Dylan was a guy who actually could turn him into a star. What was so extraordinary? What is so special? Why does that song hold up as art? <laughs> well, I'm not sure it does, by which I mean, you know, from a personal point of view, it's not a song I've ever particularly rated. How many times must the cannonballs fly before forever in the wind just got him noticed in New York and it kind of expressed a feeling that was presumably in the air but it still smacks of somebody young and naive. To me the breakthrough, the point at which he absolutely transcends everybody comes six months later when he writes Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall Yeah, yeah. and nobody was writing stuff like that Hard Rain's Gonna Fall means something's gonna happen <laughs> our conversation with Clinton Halen about Bob Dylan's early years after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Then Greg and I will review the new album by Swedish artist Likia Lee. I 
sun newborn baby with wild wolves all around it saw a highway of diamonds with nobody on it I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping I saw a room full of men with a hammers of bleeding I saw ten thousand talkers whose tongues were all broken I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children and it's a hard 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 Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRigatis, and we've been talking about the early career of Bob Dylan with author Clinton Halen. Dylan turns 70 this spring. Hard to believe, isn't it? And uh, Clinton, it's fair to say that during the first few years of Dylan's career as a singer and songwriter in New York in the early 60s, he experienced some growing pains. You know, it was a time in his life when uh, these albatrosses get tossed around. You know, he's a folky, he's a protest singer, he's the voice of a generation. We're talking about songs like The Times They Are a Changing and Who Killed Davy Moore in 63-64 that were more topical and political. But even in talking to Dylan in later years, you sort of sense that he was just, if not reluctantly writing these songs, he wasn't totally committed. So within a few years, you see him filtering some of these songs out of his set list. What's your read on the infamous protest year of Bob Dylan? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a, it's a very short period in his life. I mean, effectively, we're talking about half a dozen songs. And you can pretty much follow the line, a pretty straight line, in terms of the quality of those songs, from Death of Emmett Till through to Lonesome Death of Harry Carroll, which is kind of the last protest song he wrote, or at least certainly the last protest song that he wrote in the 60s. And he very quickly realises the limitations of the form. Hattie Carroll was a maid of the kitchen She was 51 years old And gave birth to ten children Who carried the dishes And hauled out the garbage And never sat once at the head of the table And didn't even talk to the people at the table Who just cleaned up all the food from the table and emptied the ashtrays on a whole other level. I think that the point you were making about the protest music underscores something, much as Kurt Cobain would revile from the title Grunge. Early on, Dylan, now 21, don't hang a label on me, man. I'm not going to be part of any genre. You know, he, he wrote it to a certain point. It got him some notoriety. And then the minute protest singer is linked to his name and all the headlines, he's going to do something else. You mentioned Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. It seems to me that Masters of War and Hard Rain's Gonna Fall are the beginning of a move toward a more more abstract kind of songwriting. 
That's certainly true. I mean, the songs that he was writing in the immediate aftermath of Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, which tended to be songs that were directly linked to English folk tradition, songs like Bob Dylan's Dream, wonderful song, but an evocation of a lost childhood. I mean, that's, that's as far from protest as you can get. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he is definitely starting to feel his way around. While riding on a train gone west I fell asleep for to take my rest I dreamed a dream that made me sad Concerning myself and the first few friends I've had and in a sense, because Freewheeling, which, you know, his second album comes out in May 63, the problem, in a sense, is that he's moving so fast that all these songs that he's been working on that are only nine months old. He's already way past them. And, and that's part of the reason why he completely reconfigures the album at the last minute, because he realises there's all these songs on there that he can no longer relate to. And in a sense, that is a motif for his entire career. It wasn't well received necessarily by all the all the folkies who embraced him at the start either. How do you see Dylan's reacting to this? Was this fueling his okay, you think that was a radical? Listen to this. Was he affected by it in some way? Well, I mean the Newport sixty four performance, not the fable sixty five going electric, but the Newport sixty four, I have said that uh, is a far more radical performance than sixty five mm. because the movement between his sixty three a performance, you know, where he he is the prince of protest and he becomes the darling of Newport. And the following year, he walks on stage, plays none of those songs, but instead plays two Ramona, Chimes of Freedom, Mr. Tambourine Man and My Back Pages. He's born in Duluth, but his family lived up in a little mining town. As he said, he ran away from home 17 times and got brought back 16 at any rate, I don't think anybody needs to talk for him if Bob Dylan is within hearing distance. I hope he comes forward. There he is. Bob, you are sitting back there. This is called Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. Please play a song for me. That is a staggering movement in a year. I mean, as I say, much more radical than the movement from Tambourine Man to Maggie's Farm, which is the one between 64 and 65. Mm -hmm. So he plugged in, so what? What accounts for that transformation in your mind to go from a blatant song like The Times They Are A-Changing in 63, Come Congressmen, Senators, Please Heed the Call, to uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, which is just totally surreal? Well, partly, he actually starts being honest to himself. He himself has described uh, Times as a bull <laughs> and uh, and it is. I tell the story in Beyond the Shades about Tony Glover seeing the uh, the lyrics to Times Are Changing and Dylan's typewriter and saying, what the hell is this? Uh, and Dylan says, it seems to be what people want. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's telling. And he realises, possibly directly affected by Kennedy's assassination, but he realises anyway that this stuff is, is over, to stop living in the past. There is a period of time, and it's about three months, which is a long time at that point in time for Dylan. He stops writing. He stops writing songs, anyway. He starts doodling with poems and plays and stuff. But essentially, he's just 
shutting down. And when he re-emerges in uh, February 64, it's like the chrysalis. The skin has been shed. And within two, three weeks, he writes Chimes of Freedom, almost immediately followed by Tambourine Man. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to. Now, the psychedelic rock histories, Clinton, tend to say Dylan started turning on. To what extent is the influence of the drug culture kind of playing into where he's going? Tambourine Man is written before he takes acid. Hmm. So explaining it in those terms is a very poor substitute for actually doing one's homework. The truth of the matter is, just as... Paul McCartney wrote all those amazing songs on Sgt. Pepper before he ever took acid. Dylan wrote Chimes of Freedom and Tambourine Man before he ever took acid, so I don't think that can be disputed. When you talk about him reducing to rubble traditional song structure in a song like Mr. Tambourine Man, we're talking about, okay, Tin Pan Alley is, is way over. <laughs> What's he moving into, and, and was it because of, uh, of the poetry and the outside work that he was doing that something like Mr. Tambourine Man came along? Uh, well, the heaviest influence on Mr. Tambourine Man is Rambo. The magic swirling ship is a direct reference to Le Bateau Eve, which is the drunken boat, mm-hmm. uh, possibly Rambo's most famous poem. He clearly had started to go beyond his folk sources. He'd started to read prodigiously, and uh, one shouldn't discount the influence of his girlfriend at the time, Cesar Rotolo, who was a very articulate, well-read and uh, artistic lady. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we've been talking about Bob Dylan in the first part of his career with writer Clinton Halen. In the early 60s, Dylan released four albums that all but his first sold very well at the time. But you could argue that he was even better known as a songwriter because of the very famous cover versions of his songs with people like Johnny Cash, The Birds, Peter, Paul, and Mary, all covering his songs and bringing them to a wider audience. Clinton, do you have a sense of how Dylan responded to these different interpretations? There were specific people within the Grossman camp that were being fed these songs. I mean, he would be, I'm sure if you asked him, he would be much more on the side of Adetta or Ian and Sylvia than he would be in the Peter, Paul and Mary camp in terms of who he thought was interpreting his material best. When the rooster crows Let the break of dawn A lot of those songs are being given to people directly. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Judy Collins, who did an early version of I'll Keep It With Mine, heard it from Dylan. Nico claims that that song was actually written for her, and it appears to be true. Again, you know, he wrote the song, and unbelievably, considering it's one of his greatest ever songs, mm-hmm. he, he gave it away. You'd search bay at any cost how long day can you search for what's not lost everybody will help you 
there is that sense of him being a songwriter for hire, and of course it, it runs right up to uh, the Basement Tapes, one of his three or four greatest ever achievements, and it's a bunch of demos he wrote for other people. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. We've been talking about Bob Dylan with writer Clinton Halen. He has written several books on Dylan, including Revolution in the Air, interpreting Dylan's songs. Clinton, thanks for joining us on Sound Opinions. Yeah, no problem. Delightful. Well, help you discover what you said ought to find. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and in this first installment on Bob Dylan, we've been focusing on his earliest New York years, and now Greg and I are each going to play a track that we think really stands as the best or one of the best of this era. Greg, I'm going to go with a fairly popular song, and we spent some time talking with Clinton about how a lot of the protest stuff doesn't hold up. You made the point that Dylan began phasing this stuff out of his set. There is one song, however, that I think is the very best of any of his protest anthems, and he's never phased it out. It's come up at particular times. I struggled, as I said, to learn to love Dylan, and I got in to Dylan through the covers often. I remember 1983 being at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey, on the eve of President Reagan invading a tiny island nation I didn't know existed named Granada. And the Long Riders, a wonderful pioneering alternative country band, are on stage, and they reacted to this by playing Masters of War. I remember later on an invasion of a country named Iraq the first time, seeing a band called Yola Tango, also from Hoboken, within the first, I don't know, 72 hours of that invasion, and hearing Yola Tango cover Masters of War. And then you and I were reviewing Dylan not long after the beginning of the second invasion of Iraq, the second Gulf War, and Dylan comes out and plays Masters of War. This is a timeless tune. It is not, per se, an anti-war song. Dylan has said this is a pacifist anthem. That's why I think it stands the test of time, and sad to say, it always is timely. Dylan has said he was inspired by Eisenhower's famous speech upon leaving the presidency, Eisenhower telling America, beware the military-industrial complex, beware the big business of making the machines of warfare, because people who make these machines want to use them. Dylan wrote this song based on a traditional English folk song called Nottamun Town. That's basically a nonsense song, a lot of surreal imagery based on the Mummers plays in England. It migrates over to the United States and is a popular folk song in the Appalachian Mountains. Dylan borrows a specific arrangement of it by a folk singer named Gene Ritchie, who he eventually has to pay $5,000 to for, for stealing that arrangement. And he's on fire. Rare, even among the early protest songs, is the use of you and I. Come, you masters of war, you that build the big guns, you that build the death planes. I can see through your masks. Mm. He's angry. I think this is an incredible song. It gives me goosebumps talking about it. Even better is going to be when you hear it. Try to listen to it with fresh ears. Bob Dylan, Masters of War from the Free Will and Dylan in 1963. He's thrown the worst fear. They can ever be hurled Fair to bring children Into the world For threatening my baby Unborn and unnamed You ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins 
how much do I know But to talk out of turn You must say that I'm young You must say I'm unlearned But there's a one thing I know I'm younger than Even Jesus would never forgive what you do Let me ask you one question Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find When your death takes its toll All the money you made Will never buy back your soul And I hope that you die And your death will come soon I follow your casket By the pale afternoon And I watch while you're lost Down to your deathbed And I stand over your grave Till I'm sure that you're dead That is Bob Dylan's Masters of War. Greg, have you got a Dylan track for us? Well, that is an undeniable masterpiece, Jim, and what I'm going to play is a song that has barely even been heard in the Dylan catalog. It is nowhere near the status of Masters of War, but I think it illustrates perfectly what an outstanding singer and performer Bob Dylan was when he came to New York. Yes, I said a great singer. You know, when I think about rock and roll, my definition of that is amplified personality. And I think Bob Dylan defined that amplified personality when he came to New York. He said, this is my voice. I am going to let it out into the world. I don't care (laughs) what you think of it, but this is me. This is who I am. And he's drawing on these influences that were pretty deep at the time. He was coming at it from the the sound of those old mountain soul singers that he heard on that Harry Smith folk anthology. This is a traditional southern mountain ballad, Moonshiner, that he was interpreting. And I want you to listen to a few things here. One, the subtle guitar playing, that undulating finger-picked guitar that he was playing underneath it. The harmonica playing, a brilliant harmonica player, as Clinton Halen made the point earlier. And finally, the voice. You keep hearing the chroniclers of our American folk and country traditions talking about that high, lonesome sound. I think that's what Dylan had in his voice when he sings this song. And what attracted him to it? It's three very succinct verses. In the first one, the guy's talking about his life. The product he makes to live is killing him. In the second verse, he's talking about the fact that this booze, this stuff that he's addicted to, is more important to him than a woman. It consigns him to a life of complete loneliness. And in the final verse, he gets really existential about it. He's basically saying, my life ain't worth a damn. Once this bottle empties, it's over. It's pretty heavy-duty stuff. You can see why Dylan was attracted to this song, and that kind of songwriting has influenced his entire career. I mean, he went back to these songs in a big way in the last two years. Here it is, Moonshiner, by Bob Dylan on Sound Opinions. I go to Some by room and drink with my friends. Where the women 
can't follow and see what I spend. God bless them, pretty women. I wish they was mine. Their breath is as sweet as the dew on the vine. That's Moonshiner on Sound Opinions from a 22-year-old Bob Dylan wrapping up our discussion on Bob Dylan. Now we want to hear what you think. Share your thoughts on Bob as he approaches his birthday. Call us at 888-859-1800. We're going to take a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And when we return, Jim and I are going to give our review of the new album by Swedish singer Lickya Lee. And I'll add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. Stand tall if tomorrow wasn't such a long time, then lonesome would mean nothing to me at all. Isn't only if my own true love was waiting, isn't if I could hear her heart softly pounding, only if she was lying by me. I'd lie in my bed once again. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is Likia Lee, the Swedish indie pop singer and songwriter, with a tune called Youth Knows No Pain, the kickoff track on her second album, Wounded Rhymes. Greg, Alikia Lee burst out of Sweden a couple of years ago, best known, I think, or best introduced to this country via the production on that debut record by Bjorn Idling of Peter Bjorn and John. Got a lot of buzz going, even more so when one of her tunes appeared on the Twilight New Moon soundtrack. <laughs> this was a little woman with a big sound. It was a stripped-down spare sound on that debut in many ways, but she certainly had a lot of talent and what a voice. Moves to Los Angeles for the second album, once again produced by Bjorn, of Peter Bjorn and John, and does something different this time around. It's a much bigger sound, a much more ambitious album. Wounded Rhymes is the title. We are going to play a song and then come back with our review of this second Likia Lee album. Here she is. Get some on Sound Opinions. That is Get Some on Sound Opinions from the new Lickia Lee album, Wounded Rhymes. Wow, I, I think the, the growth that she has made on this record from two years ago, I saw her at the South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas, and I thought it was quirky, pleasant enough, but nothing really blow away great. Yeah. And I, I think on this record, the maturity is just, it's leaps and bounds it's beyond stunning. what I heard. It's stunning. The maturity in the voice, the strength of the voice, there's a little bit more oomph in those tracks as well. Interesting choice of source material. I'm hearing a lot of late 50s doo-wop and early 60s Phil Spector sounds on this record. But when you think about that teen pop romance that those sounds would have celebrated back in that era, she's putting some really wicked twists on it. When you hear a song like the one we just played, Get Some, where she's doing this kind of desperate role-playing, I think, you know, saying, you know, I'll be your prostitute. This is all part and parcel of a song cycle about a really nasty breakup. She's mm. going through some travail here, and that song is like the depths of her desperation. 
And she goes through these yin and yang type of songs. There's these really powerful, lovelorn ballads and these really powerful rhythmic-based tracks on the record. And she bounces between those two extremes. It is a tough listen, but at the same time, musically, this is really powerful stuff. Strong melodies bringing out a very much stronger vocalist than I ever expected her to be. And I think uh, Bjorn, with his production here, has really stepped up to the plate and given her some more hefty backing. This is a buy-it record as far as I'm concerned. It's absolutely a buy-it record, Greg. And you, being the gospel-loving maven that you are, I'm surprised you didn't bring that influence up. There's a lot of gospel, a lot of power, a lot of soul in her voice. And also, I think, moving to Los Angeles. You know, the sun didn't do this woman any good. It is a dark record. I think in a lot of ways it's a nice disc to pair with last year's Best Coast album, which was all sunny Mm. and upbeat, also drawing from some of those 60s influences you mentioned, the girl group stuff. But this is like the evil flip side. I I can't get enough of this record. As painful as it is at times, definitely a buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play you a song we cannot live without. Greg, what have you got for us? Jim, the selection I'm going to play next is inspired by our conversation about Bob Dylan and the huge influence that Woody Guthrie had in his life. Woody Guthrie, I think, again, like Dylan, typecast as a protest singer. But I think he wrote a number of songs that fell outside that demarcation that had nothing to do with the greater political and social consciousness. And I think one of the great tributes to his career was done by Wilco and Billy Bragg on those two Mermaid Avenue albums that came out in the late 90s. Wonderful stuff on the first Mermaid Avenue record. In fact, I would rate some of the performances on that record as the best of Wilco's career. Well, that's saying something coming from Wilco's biographer. Well, I have to say, I I think some of those performances sound so natural and so unadorned and so sparse and yet so moving and powerful that I think that incarnation of Wilco, that around 97, 98, with this particular band never sounded better. And I'm not just talking about lead singer Jeff Tweedy, who gives a great performance on this song, but the rest of the band, too, the wonderful rhythm section on this song, the way Ken Coomer's drums and John Stewart's bass surround Tweedy's voice is just remarkable. And Tweedy embodies Guthrie's lyric. The song is one by one, and he's basically talking about a man who is aging and seeing his life filter away and and looking back on missed opportunities and saying, you know, I don't have many more days left to get it right. And the last thing I want to add to this, Bob Egan, one of many men who have come in and out of Wilco over the years, plays a beautiful pedal steel guitar part on this record. I think it's one of Wilco's best songs. In fact, I will say this. I think this is my absolute favorite Wilco performance. One by one by Wilco on Sound Opinions. One by one the teardrops fall as I write you. One by one my words come falling on the page. One by one my dreams are fading in the twilight. One by one my schemes are fading fast away. One by 
flowers fading in my garden One by one the leaves are falling from the tree One by one my hopes are vanished in the clouds dear One by one like snowflakes melting in the Woody Guthrie by way of Wilco, one by one on Sound Opinions. That's Greg's Desert Island Jukebox choice. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. It is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, is our tax day special with a bunch of songs about what it means to pay Uncle Sam. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Nick Myers, our intern, if he was somebody from Dylan's early days, I think he'd be Woody Guthrie. Our producer, Jason Saldana, he'd be Albert Grossman. Our other producer, Robin Lynn, she'd be Susie Rotolo. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, he's kind of like Tiny Tim. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, this is uh, Chris in Los Angeles. I just finished listening to your sampling show. I completely agree with your review of the latest R.E.M. album, Collapse in the Now, just flat. And it's not like I'm expecting them to make murmur over and over. I really feel that the Decemberists have a better R.E.M. album than R.E.M. does with King is Dead. Anyway, my opinion. Thanks. And I believe California succumbed to the fault line. We heaved relief as scores of innocents died. Hi, um, this message is for Jim and Greg. My name is Mike. I live in Richmond, Illinois. My comments are about uh, last week's show on the sampling. Jim, you're the one who said the sampling is, quote, vital but controversial component, end quote, of modern music. And you tried to legitimize its usage 
by comparing it to uh, usage of the color blue by artists. I'm a visual artist. Uh, you're wrong. The color blue cannot be copyrighted by itself as, say, a musical riff created by a guitarist, which is why Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin was sued by a family of Willie Dixon, and Jimmy Page lost. He borrowed a riff, made a fortune, and he got sued and he lost. It is thievery. It is stealing, regardless of how creatively it is used. Think about that the next time you think of a copyright or a patent or trademark violation. I sometimes disagree with you guys, but you're always interesting to listen to. All right. Bye. My name is Christopher Graham from Sioux City, Iowa. I uh, just listened to the sampling episode, which was fantastic, except I think you guys forgot a really great band, Big Audio Dynamite, uh, with Mick Jones from The Clash. Their first album, which did a ton of sampling that I love, especially, I think, the track Medicine Show, which has a bunch of great drops from old spaghetti westerns, etc. Anyway, keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. Hi, Greg and Jim. This is Wes Henry calling from Chicago. Really love your show on sampling. Just wanted to say that I was really in suspense that you were going to talk about uh, one of my favorite bands right here from Chicago who is known for sampling some really cool stuff, and that is Ministry. That 1988 album, Land of Rape and Honey, it felt like Satan himself was rocketing from the crypt right into my mind. It was just a great album. There's samples from this really weird movie called The Devils. You've got Aleister Crowley. You've got Fistful of Dollars clips. You've got clips from Aliens, Platoon, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, and official NASA footage. And uh, just a really well-rounded, awesomely scary album with a lot of really great samples. Probably not up to the speed of what you were talking about in the context of official sampling and what we're used to with hip-hop, but certainly one of the early albums that uh, kind of broke the mold there. Thanks a lot, and bye-bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.